0: Have you seen me dice bag? The Grognard Files Hello, my name is Dirk the Dice and this is the Grognard Files podcast talking bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. This is the second part of episode 28, which includes all the bits that didn't appear in the first part, featuring the interview with the Troll Godfather, Ken St. Andre. This podcast goes deluxe. We've had another review, this time a blog entry from the Otherworlds blog by Finn Cullen that captures the spirit of what the Grognard Files is all about. The podcast covers retrospectives from some of the older games and his experiences playing them. He interviews gaming luminaries from back in the day and today, and invites comment from his fellow host, Judge Blythe, often going into the why's and wherefores of the rules and the systems being discussed. In more recent episodes they've moved on to cover more contemporary games and trends in the hobby and their insights accord so strongly with my own that i found myself listening to the podcast with a sense that I'm sitting in with my own buddies and talking things through. The episodes are fun, engaging and informative with a streak of laconic humour running through them particularly when Dirk and Blythe are discussing something contentious in the room of role-playing rambling. Thanks, Finn. We have more from the interview with Ken St. Andre. He takes me on a tour of his troll cave. And we're joined by Gaz and Baz from What Would The Smart Party Do podcast to do some Tunnels and Trolls actual play. There's another First, Last and Everything i a member of the Grog Squad. This time it's Steve Ray at Olanthe R on Twitter. Eddie and Blythe join me in the shed to talk about the 1976 film At the Earth's Core for the Grogger Box. Peter Cushing and Doug McClure bore into the earth and met Caroline Munro being enslaved by pigmen with comb-overs. I'll be back at the end with some news. Until then, ramblers, let's get rambling. It's good to see you. It's really good to see it. It's a real honour for me to uh, do this with you.
1: It's my pleasure, and you called on my birthday. How amazing is that?
0: Happy birthday! Happy birthday! That's amazing.
1: Happy fool's birthday.
0: Right? <laughs> yeah, that's brilliant. Well, it's my birthday on uh, Thursday, so yeah. Yeah.
1: Happy yeah, birthday. We're, uh... Practically twins,
0: <laughs> separated at birth. <laughs>
1: separated at birth. That's it. Yeah. Would you like me to show you some amazing things that are here in the troll cave?
0: I would love to see them. Yeah, I would love All to right, see
1: I'm going to show you something that I believe is a first.
0: Right. Okay. I might be
1: wrong. Other people might have done it, but I hadn't heard of it. So, one second. Okay. Can you see this guy?
0: Oh, wow, yeah. Just hold it up a little bit more.
1: So there's a man named Darcy Perry, who, uh, among other things, makes miniatures in New Zealand. Ah, And right. he contacted me last year and asked uh, if he could make a Troll Godfather miniature or a Troll God miniature. Yeah. Uh, so we did. And as you notice, it has, you know, my face yeah. and my hat. And I told them to put a hammer in, you know, and it has like a, a World Wrestling Federation uh, title belt there for the championship. And so this is an actual solid pewter miniature made of a living game designer for a fantasy game.
0: <laughs> and, and is that available? Can people buy that?
1: They are. Yeah. That's about $60. I have a couple that's also available in resin. It's just light little plastic things. This is something that Gary or Dave or, you know, Mark or you know, Greg never did. It just uh, shows, you know, Tunnels and Trolls. Ken St. Andre is out there opening new fields, uh, doing new things before anybody. <laughs> or maybe after anybody in all their cases. <laughs> the Other major trophy. This is the... 2013 uh, super rare version of Deluxe Tunnels and Trolls. When I say super rare, I mean, you know, super rare because only about five or six of them were made.
0: Really? Uh,
1: One for each of the people on the um, uh, Fellowship of the Troll. This is in its slipcase the Dragonhide edition. Wow of deluxe tunnels and trolls um it's in this black dragon hide because when they said how do you want these bound for the super rare hardbound edition i said in black dragon hide if you have it and this (laughs) is what the uh binder pulled out for me so you can see uh see the scales on it
0: yeah that's fantastic
1: so, so that other game, I never managed to get any of their games bound in Trollhide, as far as I'm aware of. But we totally own them. <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, inside, with all the autographs and uh, the map, and, and the rest of it's just the same as the regular d Tunnels and Trolls book, in hardback.
0: I was going to ask you, Kemp, what was it like getting the gang back together, the fellowship back together, to do... Uh... To do by deluxe Tunnels and Trolls.
1: Boy, was it a pain. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, uh, it was Steve Crompton's idea. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we had run out of regular copies of Tunnels and Trolls to sell and needed to reprint. And Steve was saying, let's make it super special. Let's... Uh let's get the gang together we'll get Liz back to in and we'll get bear to do stuff and uh, you and uh, Rick will be our uh, business agent and so forth and we will do it that way uh, bears a hermit he lives you know in the northern part of uh, Phoenix and hardly ever comes out all he ever does is uh, work and spend time with his wife the only two who are really close and in Able to communicate easily are uh, Steve and me. Did you ever see the original pictures from the photo shoot we did before the Kickstarter?
0: No, I didn't see those. No, uh,
1: we went to Cave Creek and we all dressed up Victorian era uh, characters of some sort. And, and Liz came as um, a wizard, and I came as a wizard, and Bear came as a steampunk gentleman. And uh, I forget what Rick came as. Rick came as himself um, pretty much. And they gave us cowboy clothes and uh, I got a dusty overcoat and a top hat and um, a staff. And um, I did things where um, I was like shooting the others with a pistol and uh, (laughs) we we posed in the, the big family group thing and so on it was a hoot it was probably the most fun we had in all of that fellowship of the troll stuff uh there at the in 2013 so so
0: did you ever get together at other times or were you working over the internet how did how did the project get get together
1: uh mostly we worked separately you know steve worked in his house and i worked in my house and liz worked in tucson and Rick worked at Flying Buffalo, and uh, Bear worked in his home and brought us stuff, but we could all meet at Steve's house every once in a while and get together for a party or uh, a conference where we made important decisions face-to-face so that nobody could say they were left out or uh, weren't heard about the direction that the book was going to uh, go in and proceed in. Well, that,
0: I, what I really like about it is how there seems to be a dialogue between you and Liz about what is the best rule to use. I like how you've incorporated some of that uh, dispute that you've got with each other about how some of the rules should play out.
1: That's exactly what happened. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, if it had been strictly like me, book would not be quite the book it is today. <laughs> it's one of the things that I insisted on that had to be in there was that um, levels are determined by attributes. Back in the fifth edition and earlier, we had a table, you know, if you got uh, a thousand adventure points, you got to go to level two. Another 2000 would take you to level three and so forth. The same basic scheme as that other game. In 2005, I came up with a better way. Levels determined by attributes. So if you have a attribute that's in the twenties, you're a second level character. If you have an attribute in the 30s, you're a third-level character. If you start as a troll with a strength of 50, you're a fifth-level character, just like real life. That's how our levels really are determined, you know? Uh, if you know a lot, a lot and you're really, really smart, you're a much higher-level character than somebody who doesn't know any, even if you're the same age, right? Yeah. If yeah. you're a race driver and you have super reflexes and a lot of skill, you're a high-level race driver. As compared to an ordinary driver like myself. Yeah, i pushed a car up over 100 miles an hour once or twice. Uh, but um, I don't make my living at it. In Tunnels and Trolls, your level is determined by your best attribute. Yeah. And the levels give you different bonuses, you know, but... Um, I insisted on this because they wanted to go back to the old table style of doing things. I stamped my feet. I raged and shook my fist and shouted and howled and jumped up and down. And I made sure that that was in the rules.
0: Strong fellowship.
1: Yeah. On the other hand, I also wanted to have a form of magic resistance in the rules where uh, in order to cast a spell on somebody else, you had to have higher wizardry rating than they had. This would give some people a, an automatic resistance to magic. So if a warrior had a wizardry rating of 15, and some first level wizard was gonna try to blast him with a 12 point take that you fiend spell, at first level, it would bounce off. You
2: right. know? And this yeah. would
1: explain characters like Conan.
2: Absolutely. So they always
1: yeah. seemed remarkably magic resistant in the fantasy, and we argued about this for a long time. But they won, and the magic resistance went away. So you can see those rules in Tunnels and Trolls Seventh Edition and Seven Point Five, but not in Deluxe. How
0: did those decisions get finalised? Was it whoever could shout the loudest?
1: Well, Liz had the editorial role. Right. Um, I had the authorial role. Yeah. And the group had the democratic role. So on that one, we voted. Bear wanted it the old way. Liz wanted it the old way. Steve didn't care and I wanted it the new way. So it was like two and a half to one and a half. (laughs) In that case, I exceeded and said, okay, it'll still be Tunnels and Trolls and it'll be easier for some people to understand. And we'll do it your way.
0: The thing that appealed to me when I was uh, a kid with Tons and Trolls is that it was so simple and so simply produced. Do you, do you miss Do you miss that like uh, homemade aesthetic that Tons and Trolls had?
1: I do miss it quite a bit, but I'm doing something about it, and have been doing something about it since 2011. You probably know about Troll Hauler Press on Drive Through RPG, right? Yeah. Well, it's available in PDFs, but uh, sometimes we we'll go the extra step and make it available in hard copy, and that's just like the early days, right? I'm going to show you one. Yeah. So you just saw the manus- the masterpiece of Liz Danforth and Steve Crompton and uh, Flying Buffalo and so forth in Deluxe Tunnels and Trolls. Now we'll show you a not-such-a-masterpiece uh, that was um, completely written by me. Uh, illustrated by a couple of local uh, fan artists that I know and produced as a book through Trollholler Press. Does this strike you as more like, you know, first edition TNT?
0: Yeah, that's more like it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
1: this was my latest production from uh, a Tunnels and Troll stand. It's called The Peacock Continent of Troll World, and it's about um, an isolated... Australia-like continent that's off in a remote corner of the planet uh, where a semi-human race, more like uh, the Melnibonians than uh, ordinary humans of uh, peacock people live. And the men are all uh, fancy-dancy-schmancy wizards. The women are all, you know, uh, me, Torg, strong warrior. Me, smack you in head type characters (laughs) and we totally reversed role uh gender models here for this book and just had a blast (laughs) um finally got my editor who is also a bit of an artist to draw me a map
0: wow that's a good map
1: so i'm still doing things and have you seen uh did you see the little minimalist role-playing game that i did last month called fours
0: Yes, I did. And what what were you trying to achieve with that? Uh, what what, what do you I think? I was
1: trying to achieve uh, a role playing game with as few rules as possible, but still crunchy enough to be interesting yeah. that I could apply to any situation, uh, sort of like uh, the Fate system or whatever, um, and that it would obviously be uh, designed for any role playing system for playing anywhere you want. You want to play pirates? All right. We can play fi- pirates with fours. You want to play uh, spacemen? We can do that. You want to play superheroes? We can do that. In fact, I did that Friday night at the game convention I was just at. It was uh, two superheroes uh, investigate Dracula's castle in Romania.
0: Wow, that sounds great.
1: <laughs> and they met Dracula at the end.
0: <laughs> of course. Brilliant. So just it's going back to uh, Tunnels and Trolls because um, – a good friend of uh, the podcaster, John Hancock, uh, pointed out that back in the '80s, in a in a fanzine, you said that the TNT was a zombie, and it you know it's still staggering on. Do you do you feel like it's come back to life? Oh yeah, yeah.
1: Um, uh, in the '80s, it was possible that TNT might have just sort of faded away if Rick decided not to publish anymore. Uh disappeared like uh, dozens or hundreds of other uh, individual effort role-playing games that were out at the time did. Um, I was a new father. Uh, my daughter had just been born. Yeah. And uh, I was deeply involved with trying to get ahead in my library career. Not part of the real Flying Buffalo crew, which was 30 miles away or 20 miles away someplace you know they were in Tempe I was in Phoenix I had to make an effort to go out and see them It's kinda of felt like you know it might just uh, fade away completely we were I was still having fun with my friends and you know game conventions and such but that was about it there wasn't any major marketing push in fact we never did give up we never did die uh, so uh, it might have been an impression, but it wasn't the truth. Tunnels and Trolls was never a zombie.
0: Oh, that's good. That's good to hear. I think I think John worries about that analogy.
1: <laughs> uh, well, now in the 21st century, it's flourishing like it never did before. And that may be because in the 90s, I started uh, an Internet fan club for Tunnels and Trolls called Trollhalla, And I at our heyday, we had about 400 members. I was just going to do it all with HTML and uh, a site on – anyway, that was a free website available. It wasn't Yahoo at the time. It was someplace else. And um, I got it, and I did up an HTML version of uh, an interactive page where I could, you know, put up messages anytime I wanted to sit down and just change the HTML and write something new and – Uh, people could write to me or uh, send me emails and I could post them in there. And then one of my fans, who was a much better programmer than I, (laughs) in fact, the world is full of people who are much better at what they do than I am. Uh, But I don't care. Uh, uh, They work for me. (laughs) I don't work for them. Uh, I work for me too, right? But... um, so if I'm having fun and you're having fun, we're all having fun. That's the important thing.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: If you're having fun and I'm not having fun, that's a bummer. Uh and if I'm having fun and you're not having fun, well, that's narcissism. <laughs> narcissism. Yeah. Uh but if we're all having fun, that's that's a win win. That's great. And- uh, anyway, he was a much better programmer than me and he said, Ken, I could do something in God, what's that language called now? Anyway, I can do something in SPL or STL or whatever it is. Yeah,
0: one of those. Yeah.
1: yeah. I can do it in uh, Howard Philip Lovecraft's language, you know, uh, with <laughs> Cthulhu in the background. And uh, and we'll make a page that's really interactive. I went, okay, Joe. I remember who did it anyway. Okay, Joe, do it. Show me. And that's when Troll Hollow really took off.
0: Yeah. Fantastic. When it
1: really died was when they uh, modified the language so much, they updated it and updated it and updated it that my old code wouldn't work, and my old coder had moved on to other things and wasn't interested in doing new code. Well,
0: well you've already you've already mentioned um, Conan and H.P. Lovecraft and Melnibone, so you you work and you are steeped in novels and books. If I could uh,
1: spin the computer screen around, let me see. Yeah, look at this. It's practically glued to the the table here. See all the books and things behind me? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And there's another bookcase over there and 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 a bookcase over there and a bookcase over there and and stuff piled on the chairs. Yeah. Uh, And then there's my bedroom.
0: Yeah, It doesn't look like the Dewey Decimal System in operation here, Uh, is it? (laughs) uh,
1: It is not the Dewey Decimal System. It's just, (laughs) where do I have room on the shelf for this book? (laughs) Uh, And um, the bookcase that's over there is uh, full of the best stuff. The absolute best stuff. That's where the Deluxe TNT stays. Uh, That's where Grimtooth's Ultimate Traps Collection is sitting. That's where the... This is where the hardbound Donald M. Grant oh, hardbound wow. edition of the original Robert E. Howard stories lives. Fine art, fine paper. Uh, this is the people of the Black Circle. That's yeah. where Conan is in India, basically, uh, fighting those wizards on the mountaintop. Yeah. To yeah. the princess. I'm a real Robert E. Howard fan. Wow! It's yeah. is Black like Volney's vengeance. Nobody's even heard of this book. <laughs> These are the pirate stories that Robert E. Howard wrote. The Treasure of Tranicos was originally a pirate story, and he reworked it into a Conan story, for uh, the story where Conan's on the Pictish coast, uh, fighting wow. fighting Picts there as a as a pirate. These are the original Alex Raymond. Flash Gordon comic strips from the 30s. Oh. That's what this book is. It's a compilation.
0: Oh, they great.
1: The original Flash Gordon story. This is The Face in the Abyss by Abraham Merritt. This is sort of modern fantasy. Uh, modern being, you know, the 1930s.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: And his hero was a 20th century Earthman who gets caught up and lost in this incredibly fantastic place where the gods are real. And again, these, these I have these books because, you know, I wasn't around in the 1930s. I have these books because of Donald M. Grant Press, which produced these really fine, high-quality versions of these fantasy masterpieces and classics.
0: And the, the illustrations look fantastic in those as well.
1: They are great. They're yeah. just really, that's the, one of the prime reasons for buying it.
0: You collaborated with uh, Greg and uh, Steve on Stormbringer, which uh, I played the other day on my birthday. Actually, um, we uh, we had a, g- a great time uh, uh, Did playing there. Yeah, it was excellent. Excellent.
1: But the thing that matters the most to me is that the people who play these games actually have a good time. Yeah. Uh, that they enjoy them. You might learn something, or you might not, but you know, uh, you you get to go someplace else and. Uh, Be and feel and think different things for a little while.
0: And uh, what was the experience of uh, adapting uh, Moorcock's world for uh, Stormbringer? Was that a a labor of love?
1: It was a labor of love. Um, By the time I was in high school, I was actively seeking out anything that I called sword and sorcery. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I looked through book catalogs to find things. And if it seemed like it could be sword and sorcery, I bought it. So I had the first uh, two thin editions of Moorcock's books, uh, Stormbringer and the Stealer of Souls, uh, in which uh, everything is a short story in Mm. uh, Stormbringer. And then the Stealer of Souls is sort of a novel-length conclusion for what Moorcock meant to do was just end the Elric epic right there. You know, he'd written a bunch of, some stories. He wrote, he wrote a climax. He destroyed the world. What more could an author do? Yeah. You know, he came up with that great ending line, you know, uh, where, you know, Elric is dead and, uh, Stormbringer goes uh, happily laughing off into limbo going, you know, I was always more evil than you. (laughs) You Uh, and, uh, and that was it. That was all that existed of Elric in those days. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had them. And I had read them a couple of times.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I really liked them. I really liked the fact that they, they took the Conan stereotype. Conan was not a stereotype when Howard created him. Conan was an original.
2: Mm-hmm. There
1: was nothing like Conan in uh, fantasy fiction up to that point. Nothing. Uh, so, uh, but he'd become a stereotype by the 70s. You know, and been satirized many times and so on. And Moorcock took that, the um, common barbarian uh, super warrior, and stood it on its head with Elric and said, we will have an effete prince who gets all his powers from his magic sword uh, and run his adventures. Said, oh, this is great. You know, this is abs. You get all the same wonderful gods and monsters uh mythos background Mm -hmm. um there's obviously a bit of a science fiction influence in here because moorcock's not coming up with traditional you know dragons and chimeras and uh ordinary things in fact the dragons are his pets you know the Milnubanaeans control them and ride them around like horses i loved it i just loved it and when i heard that uh chaosium had gotten the rights to do a uh Elric game, a Moorcock-based game. I went, oh, boy, I would sure like to be involved in that. And then my friend at the time, Rudy Crafts, says, I'm going to go for that. Uh, I'm going to pitch this idea uh, to Greg for it. And he pitched an idea that sounded very much like that other game. Uh, I went, well, good luck, uh, Rudy. Uh, (laughs) uh, the, The next day, I wrote Greg a letter saying, so I understand Rudy is pitching uh, this approach for your new uh, Moorcock-based Elric game. Uh, I read what, what he's going to do, you know, because he, he told me. And I think it's a terrible idea. I want to pitch my idea. So this is what I think should be done, you know. Mm-hmm. And I outlined, like, the character creation. Uh, and the outline, I says, and D20s. Everybody uses D20s. That's that other game. Let's use a real D100. Mm-hmm. Because uh, your basic role-playing system already uh, goes to 100, you know. And, uh, and So instead of doing everything in 5% increments, we'll do them in 1% increments. We can roll a D100, and we can increase things by one point at a time, or two points, you know, yeah, just a little bit. Uh, yeah. And then uh, you want a skill system? We could have a skill system. We'll do a skill system where you know um, you get so many, and you can get new ones this way and that way. And you know, a four-page letter pitching Stormbringer, and a week later, I got a letter back from him that says, "Ken, the job is yours." <laughs> Start writing.
0: And and of course, it came out as the same year as Call of Cthulhu, didn't it? So yeah, it,
1: yeah. Tragic. <laughs> uh, uh, those those games actually tied in the voting for best game of the year at the Origins uh, Game Awards uh, the next year. So, uh, damn it, Sandy, couldn't you have held off for a Cthulhu game for one more year? (laughs) I could have had my award, and you could have had your award, and we wouldn't have to share one. (laughs) Uh, They actually gave us both the award that year at Origins in, what, 1984 or something, Forget the exact title or date. But um, but yeah, it was like the only game award I ever won. Really? Over all this time? Yeah. Uh, well, there were fewer game awards being given out back then. Yeah. But um, uh, Tunnels and Trolls never won anything. Uh, last year, principally through the uh, maneuverings of my friend John Wick, the game designer. Yeah. 70, um the Origins Committee said, yeah, we have overlooked him a long time. We, we thought about him earlier, and you know he lost that to somebody else in the voting. Uh, let's put him in the Hall of Fame. Uh-huh. Uh, and John Wick you know, encouraged that. And uh, and I wasn't going to go to Origins last year. And Rick said, would you go if they put you in the Hall of Fame? Went, well, yeah, I guess I'd have to go. Yeah. So we went, and we finally got in on the basis of you know, my lifetime achievement. Uh, rather than any particular uh, game. Well,
0: finally, I've got uh, a question from one of our listeners, uh, somebody you might know, and uh, he's uh, got a a special plea here. It says, Ken, you imprisoned, sorry, recruited Big Jack Brass in Gristlegrim's floating dungeon nearly 20 years ago. Any chance of a parole hearing?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Jack can always go out whenever he wants. Um, Grisselgrim will let him out. Uh, you know, that story is available on Troll Hall of Press, you know. You can, you can buy and read the story of how uh, Big Jack Brass, you know, um, uh, s- offered to sacrifice his beard to Grisselgrim in order to get into the place. And, and how he completely flubbed every single thing he did on the inside. <laughs>
0: Fantastic.
1: Uh, he still lives to tell the tale. Yeah. Um, I don't know of anybody who's ever actually used Jack as a monster. <laughs> uh, that, that's what we put him in. We figured he'd make a, a great comic relief monster you know, to throw at somebody uh, in a TNT game sometime. Jack can go out and have more adventures. In fact, John, if you're listening to this or seeing this, I want you to write me another Jack Big Jack Brass adventure or two. <laughs> or, you know... Um, Maybe we can take him off to the Peacock Continent. Uh, he, he's, would he wear a skirt? This is all <laughs> I need to add. Uh, would he wear a skirt and uh, high shoulders, you know, uh, uh, to be part of the wizard class on the Peacock Continent?
0: <laughs> and, and on that note, I think I've said thank you very much, uh, Ken. Bye. Bye, now. Bye now. Call me anytime. Thank you. Actual play! So you're goblins. Um, you've got pointy ears, pointy teeth slick green skin, yeah, no hair, and you've got longer legs and long arms, are longer than your body, and a sunken chest and a hard, hot belly. And you dream of returning to Fishquish Lake where things were simpler. All you had to worry about every day was a spearing, fat, shimmering fish in the lake. But King Snorking had to do a deal with a uruk raiding party. So you've been led to this hidden location uh, after years of moving around the complex. You don't know quite where you are in relation to the rest of the underground, but it's it's dank and dark. And you're about to be briefed by Captain Tark Barak, who's your slave master, one of the Barak-breaking Uruks. He's in retirement, despite his years and scars and wounds that he has, he's kept himself in good shape, and he's quite an imposing fig- figure, and he's provided you uh, skewered charcoaled rats on a stick for you to eat, and you're in a kitchen area in the centre uh, of a room where there's a couple of cells, a cell that you've just come out of, and a cell that's got three other goblins in there Greb, Herbs and uh, jackan you should in no way see them as spare characters <laughs> So you're, you're sat in the middle, and uh, he, he's feeding you these uh, rats on a stick. They're quite a delicacy, they sell them elsewhere in the dungeon. And he's shoveling, he's got uh, big barrels of salt around, and he, he shovels some onto your plate for you to season it. Greb herbs and jarrett, uh, uh, trying to reach in out because they want a scrap from your plate. So it's a chance to introduce yourself. So he's going to do a, a quick roll call. So let's uh let's hear up from Portinskew. Portinskew, yeah, or Potty for short. He's not strictly
3: speaking um, a goblin. He's actually a hobbit with Stockholm syndrome. So he's been captured by the goblins a long, long time ago, and he now thinks of himself as a goblin. And you think he's a goblin as well, and everyone else thinks he's a goblin. He's got. Uh, spell called Get Over It, which is a healing spell. And what about
0: uh, Gut?
4: So, I am Gut Rub, and I'm in every sense a goblin. I'm the last of my name in my clan, the Red Gizzard clan. Well, apart from my younger brother, who's got the same name, I assume, and is also part of the same clan. But apart from that, I'm the last of my name, apart from the other one. And uh, I used to work in a basilisk hatchery, which is probably the reason why (laughs) I've got... uh, two eye patches <laughs> one over each eye um, with small crystals set amongst them so I can see vaguely but I'm pretty much as, as blind as someone who works in a basilisk catchery should be.
5: Okay, what about Git? Git is uh, the homunculus of gut. <laughs> He's almost identical but about 66% of the size. <laughs> He's licking his lips and sniffing the air at the smell of charcoal wrap because... He's somehow misplaced his uh, his crystalline patch. God knows where he went. But hopefully his older brother can look after him. So for now, he's uh, he's sniffing out those ratty morsels with the power of his not inconsequential nasal cavities. He too used to work in the basilisk uh, hatchery, so that's why he's been blind. But he knows he knows of a secret, perhaps a way out of this godforsaken place. If only guts to stop messing about and. Uh, Get in on the plan, so we can get out and and get back to that lovely fish-squish lake where we could dine on wriggly jelly deals. (laughs) Tarek
0: pulls up a chair and sits and he starts to brief you. (laughs) To you, he sounds quite refined. Uh, Listen carefully, you're about to be deployed as greasers and he lifts uh, lead buckets with um, thick, cloying, orange animal fat in them. So There's three buckets and he hands them to you. Uh, This is the temple area of the complex. Uh, There's a shrine to the Great One. And what we lack in number, we will make up with decoys, ambush, inveiglement machinery, prankish strategy, and a number of baited devices. You're here to maintain them. Traps. This place is filled with traps. And the traps in this section are designed by the great Grimtooth himself. You're on a three-day shift. One day, two day, three day. So today is one day, tomorrow is two day, and the day after that is to, is tomorrow after that. Is that clear? One, Crystal. two, lots. I think you get it. Point Portisque, repeat it back.
3: Um it's a three day shift. So Um Day one, day two, then the next day is the day after day two. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Now it's
0: it's dangerous work. So you understand, so take care, protect yourself against the human scum. And he hands you um uh, your your blades, some thick blades, he, he he gets them out of uh, a, a sack that he's got at the side. You, uh, protect yourself, look after yourselves. Um uh, we're expecting an attack at any time.
3: He's got a reasonable chap, doesn't he? Actually, where you put him across there, it's for a slave master, he's quite nice. Well, yeah, he's, he's I can quite understand, quite understand nice. why I've got Stockholm syndrome.
0: <laughs> and he says there seems to be a disturbance in trap three, and uh, there's something wrong with uh, one. It's been it's been like that all week, and you can see that uh, there's a pebble fluttering the other one's fallen over the one for trap 2 has fallen over so it seems to be some kind of warning device that he's got um, to show whether the traps
5: are working or not right what can you see, Gut? what can you see Uh, Gitter rub his greasy fingers all over the map trying to discern dimples or any other feature you might able to tell with his wanting eyesight get off, you're smearing
4: it backhand him across the cell right, hang on, let me get a proper look at this thing I'll hold it like half an inch away from my enormous green nose and uh and use my they've got the crystal set into my eye patch like a jeweler's eyepiece and uh move up and down across the parchment like 1 centimetre at a time um well we've uh, from here well i suppose i don't know how long it's going to take to get around but i think i think trap 3 seems seems the closest i guess you know we could take our buckets of grease there and, and see what's going on would that be a good thing to do what, what do you say,
3: pot and skew? Hmm, that sounds a good plan. Is, is um this this, rat on a stick thing? Is that our breakfast? Yes. Do we get a second breakfast? <laughs> I know where these thoughts come from. Occasionally, I have
5: these thoughts about a second breakfast. I'm not quite sure where they come from. But yes, trap three. You haven't seen my eye patch, about it. have you? Have you got? I did a minute ago. I'm sure. I uh, uh, I haven't seen much recently. These past few years. Um, it, it can't
4: be this one. Uh, I've only got this one and, and, and that one. So no, it's, it's, it's none of those. well you've got, two One for each eye.
5: Makes well, sense, well, then doesn't it? One. I'm not an idiot. They're right. to are be sticking your fingers in traps and stuff. You can't, you can't be sending me in blind. <laughs>
4: <laughs> You'll be all right. You're you're uh, you're smaller than me, so uh, any spear traps will go right over your head. I'll, I'll no doubt take one in the face for you. Don't worry. Great. Okay follow me I walk into the wall
3: <laughs> follow him I should lead the way given that I can see <laughs> that that's super superpower, being able to see
0: so okay. so what you can see um, get through, you can see shapes and movement but um, they've sealed your eyelids with wax um, so that, that's all you can see through through there so you're not, you're not completely blind it just means that
5: anything that you do will be one level harder And in the others, I'll grab a I'll grab a fistful of Potinsky's cloak then, and uh, follow him up the stairs. Okay, so you
0: go up the stairs, and at the top there, it looks like a tapestry uh, that you can pull aside, and there's a corridor, quite an austere corridor of uh, granite with uh, three pillars down the centre. that have been carved, coiled serpents wrap around these, uh, these pillars. And at the top, you can see on a pedestal a statue, a vermilion statue of a winged creature with uh, horns. Okay,
4: so we're supposed to go up towards this statue, and then there should be a little passageway with the trap in it, right?
3: Yep. Yeah. Right?
0: Yep. Yeah. The eyes of the statue flick open. The <laughs> wings of it uh, unfurl. It's quite a wide span. It fills the um, the width of the uh, of the corridor.
5: Well, that's not good. A git'll drop to his knees and cower. <laughs> you cannot go past. We're with official um, trap maintenance crew.
3: I'm
0: not. I'm not uh, I've not seen your faces before.
4: We've, we've been sent by our boss. We're the new shift. Yeah, you don't. Listen, you're not the trap, are you? The trap.
0: I have been put here to protect the temple. I have certain I have certain discretion in these matters, but uh, you can't get past. Will it help if we grease you
5: up, or grease your palms?
0: I beg your pardon.
3: (laughs) No, I can't use grease.
5: (laughs) We can grease your palms. I've heard that's what humans do to get places. Humans, humans, where are they? They're just down the stairs, I saw them a minute ago.
0: You're just down the corridor, yeah. I uh, I may have let some through. Like I say, I have some discretion in this matter. There was <laughs> there was too many of them. What kind of discretion do you have? Can you let us through, then, if you have discretion? No, nope, you can't go past. I will let the Ilkin pass. You must stay. Me? I, yes. I am an Ilkin. Oh, no, you're not. Oh, well, yes, yes, I, I am. <laughs> he puts up a long finger and uh, points to your feet and you can see that there's little tufts of hair sticking up between your toes
4: I'll get down on my hands and knees and get a couple of inches away from his feet you know what, I think he might be right this is the first I've heard of this maybe you're not a goblin after all
3: you smell like one I can't believe that
5: his feet probably just need greasing down a bit
3: yeah, probably the hair just needs greasing down (laughs) what are you suggesting I am? I'll say to this demonic figure What's he suggesting that I am
0: if I'm not an Ilkin? I've seen them before in rogues. that usually travel with human scum. I think they call them half-men. No, don't know what you're talking about. I am bound by the wizard who put me here to kill any non-Ilkin that passes. Therefore, half-man, I am going to eat you. Did you probably
3: do? Did you say <laughs> that you'd let some humans pass? I have, I have certain certain discretion in this matter. Well, you say you have. Have you got discretion? Have you just failed in your duties? Now, if you failed in your duties, we won't say anything about it. We'll go in and maintain the trap, get rid of the people that are in there, and no one needs to know.
0: Okay, give me a level three uh, charisma (laughs) (laughs)
3: roll. Level three. Good God, that's thirty or more, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Charisma.
0: You trust me on this? What's your charisma?
3: 14, so I need a
2: 16, <laughs> 16 or more. On yeah. well, how many dice? On two, but double, oh.
3: you double, you just. No. <laughs> Six.
0: <laughs> That's a 20. No, I failed. Oh, yeah. Failed miserably. A, a, s- a splash of drool falls from his uh, mouth onto the uh, onto the corridor. No, half man, you cannot pass. i let these. Ilk and go. be on your way. If you have to fix traps, f- <laughs> fix them. Leave this one with me and I will eat him.
2: First, last and
0: everything.
6: Hello. This is my contribution to the soon-to-be-legendary First, Last and Everything segment. I'm Steve Ray at all on Twitter. I'm not sure how I first heard of gaming or tabletop role-playing as a kid. I certainly didn't play a lot of board games when I was younger, other than the standard 70s fare of Bookaroo, Mousetrap and Monopoly. I'd always been interested in fantasy and sci-fi novels though. Alongside the peerless Tolkien, I'd also been captivated by Julian May's Saga of the Exiles, a time-travelling saga that saw fugitives from a future utopian society going into Earth's prehistoric past only to find it already claimed by warring sonic races from a far galaxy. Amazing stuff, and i spent many happy hours daydreaming about actually being one of the exiles. One with amazing sonic powers, obviously. However, my first glimpse of a way to live out these daydreams, if only by proxy, came with hearing about the fighting, the fighting fancy game books and meeting my friend Ant for the first time. Having purchased the Forest of Doom from the local smiths, I was entirely hooked on the whole concept and I wanted more of it, or anything like it. Even though this was 1983 and I was 15, I'd never heard of Dungeons and Dragons, Traveller, White Dwarf or anything like that. But someone told me at school that if I was interested in that sort of thing, then Ant was the man. I didn't really know him, other than as a kid who hung around with another lad who wore a jacket festooned with kiss band patches. Another thing I was drawn to but had no understanding of. Having made my first approach, oh, alright, you got loads of those fighting fancy books, could I borrow some? I managed to get a in- reluctant invite to Ant's house to see his gaming stuff. To say Ant was a pinnacle of gaming call cool in 1983 would be an understatement. He'd been started off early in wargaming by his uncle. By the time I met him, he'd become well-established and seemed to own a copy of virtually everything. AD&D, RuneQuest, Bushido, Laserburn, Nuclear War, Traveller, Illuminati, the list goes on. What impressed me most was the offhand way he'd refer to stuff as open boxes and cupboards in his gaming den to be greeted by ever more amazing finds. Oh yeah, that's me fully painted 15 military English Civil War Army. Or, oh yeah, that's a full set of the Car Wars games and all the Uncle Albert's catalogues. It It'd even been on a week-long gaming holiday to Peter Gilder's Wargaming Holiday Centre, returning with tales of manoeuvring vast blocks of miniature Napoleonic soldiers across fully detailed gaming tables, complete with needles for bayonets to stop you leaning on them, I must have stared disbelievingly at this. His parents had paid for him to do that. I came from a standard Midlands working class background, and this type of thing was so far outside my conception of what was possible, it may as well have been science fiction. I had no idea what any of this stuff was, or how it was used, of course. I just knew that I wanted in. Aunt graciously let me borrow some of his collection of white dwarfs, and I devoured them. Again, I had no clue what I was looking at, but magical sounding terms like Thacko and Sword of Humact just drew me in even further. I even read one White Dwarf article that gave tips on how to play the Saga of the Exiles in AD&D. I couldn't make head or tail of it, but I was in. The problem was that Ant didn't like DMing games. Like most of us at that age, we were fairly shy and retiring and didn't like to show ourselves up in front of others. So apart from one very brief AD&D session where I chased a couple of kobolds around a tiny dungeon, we mainly played board games, or miniature war games, along with a small group of Ant's friends that I managed to foist myself upon. But the allure of RPGs remained, bringing me to my first. Like the Armchair Adventurers, we had our own version of the Prime Directive, although we never articulated it like that. It was more that Ant had pretty much everything already, and we didn't have cash to throw around. Nine ninety-nine 99 was a lot of money to, for us to spend on anything in the early 80s. However. In reading White Dwarf, I'd come across repeated references to something named Call of Cthulhu, but I had no clue what it was. But it had the advantage that Ant didn't already own it, and so I kept looking at adverts for the Games Workshop box set, reading scenarios and pondering how to say words like Nala and Cthulhu. It wasn't until Games Workshop bought out its Good Games Guide in 1985 that I bit the bullet and shelled out some of my McDonald's wages for the game and the Cthulhu Companion at the Birmingham branch of Games Workshop back when the legendary Ted still ran the place. Anyone remember him? I spent ages reading the rules, some of which I found genuinely unsettling, and eventually ran one of the introductory scenarios, The Haunted House, rebranded by me as the last house on the left, to firmly establish in my players' minds that this was a horror game. I can't really remember what happened, but I have a vivid memory of us all sitting down in Aunt's mum's dining room, rolling dice and mocking each other mercilessly. We play Cthulhu, Perhaps a couple more times, on one memorable occasion, rampaging through White Dwarfs the Horse the Invisible, where the players ended up torturing a butler for information, then engaging in a firefight with police called by the other terrified servants. Good times. But this was the time when GW and other companies were pumping out RPGs on what seemed like a daily basis Merp, Judge Dredd, Golden Heroes. With income from our part time jobs, we bought them all and sometimes played them, the new shiny always pushing other games to the back of the queue. Although my original Cthulhu box fell victim to one of our group's constant game trading sessions long ago, I recently picked up a copy of the box and companion in great condition. Opening it up took me right back and made me want to run Cthulhu again at some point. For me, RPGs remained an important part of my gaming life until the mid to late 90s, but it was always alongside and eventually overtaken by miniature wargaming. All sorts of things, but mainly Warhammer 40,000 or 40k for the cognoscenti. I think we just got older, and as we'd never spent any time on any one game, we weren't invested in any world or set of characters. Besides, most of us had families by then, or other commitments, and Wargaming had the advantage of being easy to arrange with little thought needed beforehand, or rather it was that is, until a chance remark by my daughter a couple of days before Christmas in 2017. I think she'd seen a reference to Critical Role and d and on social media, and casually declared she'd like to give it a go. Rather than buying a player's handbook straight off, I remembered I'd got a few bits of RPG stuff in the loft that I'd kept for sentimental reasons mainly. A battered RQ2 rulebook and Cults of Prax, together with some Earthdawn books. Picking up the Rune Quest, I wondered whether there were any podcasts covering this stuff. The phrase, "sword of fumat" still rang in my memory, so perhaps it was time to find out what one actually was. I found a podcast called The Grognard Files on iTunes, of course, and the rest, as they say, is history. On listening to Dirk, Blythe and Ed ramble on about the game, I experienced a warm Russian nostalgia. War game—it was all very well, but I really hankered after a narrative game experience, where the story was all and notions of winning and losing were unnecessary. But where in gaming could such an experience be found? As the great man said, Dole! Now, after a break of 16 years and 16 months on from those first tentative steps back into RPGs, I'm all in once more. I've played and run games at conventions. I've played in epic OSR campaigns that have twisted my mind. Old Scouts of role I'm looking at you. Taken part in full-on single-system gaming weekends. Shout out to the hashtag one ring road-trip massive. And have embraced running sprawling narrative games on Roll20. Brilliant stuff. As I write this, the last game I played was the excellent Scum and Villainy from Evil Hat, a world away from the games that first drew me in during the mid-80s. It's a great, quirky game. I like the way it jumps straight to the action and says yes but to the players. I'm in the process of putting together a mashup of elements of this approach and traditional RuneQuest to run a heist caper set in Boldhome during a future st- session. Experimental stuff. All of which neatly brings me to my everything game. It was the thought of RuneQuest and the possibility of finally understanding what a sort of Act was that brought me back into the hobby. A tentative call-out on Twitter for a group to help me practice my rusty GMing abilities resulted in five strangers willing to give it a go, just for six sessions or so. Now, just over a year on, we've become embroiled in the political machinations of the lunar occupation of Sartar, and we're 26 sessions in. The session write-ups alone come to around 40,000 words. Although the game has its limitations and oddities, has not every set of rules, it's become my everything game because of the friendships that have grown up around it, as they have around every game I've played and run since coming back into the fold. So that's it. Call of Cthulhu first, Scum and Villainy last, and RuneQuest might everything. Thanks to Dirk for letting me drone on about this, and possibly providing a different regional accent for overseas listeners to get irritated by.
2: Grunklebox.
6: Okay, we've come to the shed. It's Ed's screening room.
0: You don't sound right, that does it? <laughs> Screening it it's a convenient room. Sounds like Ed. Head, head's going to get us naked and make us cough. <laughs> Hello, Eddie. Hello, Dirk. Hello, Bliday. Right. Dirk. We've come to your shed and we've been watching a film, watching a movie, At the Earth's Core. Mm. A British movie that, which was released in 1976 based on the Edgar Rice Burroughs novel of the same name. It was a serial. 1914, it was originally written. All right. And since uh, we had Ken St. on and he was saying about how much of an influence Edgar Rice Burroughs is, I've been reading it and it makes you realise how much of an influence he's had on people that we like. Mm. So like Michael Moorcock, you can definitely see the influence of Edgar mm. Rice Burroughs. And as as a kid, um, Tarzan, I used to watch Tarzan a lot, the Ron Eli one. Yeah, yeah. I used to watch a Johnny Wise, Muller. the (laughs) The black and white the black and white film yeah they used to be on BBC too didn't they but I
7: never wanted to read them when I got into fantasy for some reason Tarzan was completely so far away from fantasy that I never thought I'd want to read it I knew I I think in Er, her he'd done the uh, was it the Carter and Mars yeah John Carter and Mars but I I don't know it just wasn't on my radar Edgar Edgar rice Burroughs.
2: yeah
0: but the, the particular that series that was it was on in the seventies with Ron Ely, uh, TV series the yeah. one with the uh, famous tune, you know where he starts off with him. Going, does he have a chimp? He does have yeah. cheetah. A a cheetah, che- yeah. Oh Cheater's yeah, yeah I did you watch that? Yeah. Yeah, and Jay. Yeah. and I used to like Ron Ely because he has a look at my dad <laughs> when he <I> was younger. <laughs> I used to <laughs> think he looked like my dad. Yeah, it's funny though. maybe isn't he it? looks like
3: it, everyone's dad. Yeah, that, yeah. that was his, <laughs> that was his popularity. Everyone thought their dad was Tarzan. <laughs> yeah. and somehow Ronnie Eli encapsulated that. <laughs> the fatherly figure.
0: So, at the Earth's core, did, is this a film that you saw when you were younger? I must have done, because there was
7: nothing much else on telly, with there?
2: So in the 70s, <laughs> three channels. Can be you be sure you saw two channels? in the 70s. Yeah, so if that up. was
7: on telly on a Saturday night, which it probably was at some stage, weren't it? I and remember watching
3: it was. as a kid. When I, when I rewatched it, I, I vividly, I, it all came kind of flooding back. I was almost a scene ahead of them. Yeah. You know, it did did come back to me.
0: Now I, the reason why I've suggested this is because I've been pretty obsessed by this film for most of my life. Why? Um, <laughs> <You're lying. laughs> <laughs> but I, when I was when I was a, uh, I must I must have seen it when it came out. So I must have been about eight. Because I did you go to the pictures? Went to see right. the pictures because whenever whenever it was um, mm. summer, I used to mind and my dad to go and watch the. But, and you didn't find out about the blockbusters, did you? In the same way you do now, you just used to look at the cinema and see what, see was, what on. was on there yeah. and the posters yeah, yeah. and the lobby cards. Remember the little mm. photographs? Yeah, they used the to sell the pictures, yeah. and they had pictures of these monsters, and they looked fantastic. Great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I wanted to see this film. <laughs> <laughs> they looked fantastic because they weren't moving. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't going but on to that. It maybe. really, it really, really sold this film, and. Um, I remember taking my dad, and we went seeing it a few times while we were on holiday, because I used to say, "I want to see it again. I want to see it again." Yeah,
2: yeah.
0: And then in the eighties, my dad was a bit of an, an early adopter of uh, VHS, and uh, we had a video recorder. I don't know if you remember this. I don't know if you had this experience, but to be part of a video club, a mate at work I had a mate who used to come round with a suitcase.
2: With, <laughs> so this is a, your,
0: What kind of video club was this?
2: Yeah.
3: What's going on here? What's going to come out? We all knew the videos on the, video shops
7: on the corner, but yeah. not a suitcase,
0: right?
3: Yeah. It was like the pop, the man who came round with the pop.
0: A bit like pop that, a bit like that. But what you had to do, because this was early on, when there wasn't that many shops around, to buy into this club, you had to buy a video that was like your deposit. Yeah. a video
7: machine no no yeah, a, uh, an,
0: actual, an actual cassette that was your like ins- his insurance policy that you, you know at the end of it how much were them cassettes they were expensive they were about 30 quid
3: oh well, yeah they were very expensive to buy them when they first yeah. came out yeah they were they were yeah
0: so what the idea was is that you you bought one that went into his catalogue Mm-hmm. but it meant that some it, kind of
3: weird pyramid scheme this <laughs> Ponzi
0: scheme <laughs> Ponzi video scheme isn't
3: it What? Why? you've been ripped off here you? you never see it again
0: <laughs> but, no no but you, you would rent that means that you could borrow somebody else's or somebody else's mm-hmm. and I persuaded my dad to get at the earth's core
7: as the main one as, as ours alright right. But, but nobody ever borrowed it from <laughs>
0: <laughs> what, what?
3: But what's the? Yeah, but you, you don't benefit from that because he's got it in his suitcase.
0: Exactly. I kept saying to my
3: dad, "Get it, go, right, get it, get, it, go, get it back. That's not He really said, "No, want... but I want to get something it's else." It's like a weird wife
0: swapping video. Get <laughs> what? You mean, what kind of scheme is this? But that, that's what, that's what happened. And we and the thing is, I don't think we actually ended up with that at the end. You know when he went, yeah, with his suitcase into the distance. <laughs> you know I'm like Margaret Thatcher.
3: <laughs> when you bought it, yeah, could you go? But well, I'll watch it and go, right, I've watched it, then give it to him. Yeah. Right, so you, you watched it once, did
0: you? I kept wanting it back. But, but you did watch it once. I, I did, did watch your it. Your dad back. didn't want it but back. No, want... he, my dad wanted... Uh... He didn't understand what? the subtleties of this weird no. business scheme. That my dad, dad wanted Emmanuel or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he used to put it on top of the kitchen cupboard. and think, <laughs> weird, you know. Anyway, that's another story. But yeah, I, this, is, this is a film that I, I watched a lot. And I have a bit of an affection for it because...
2: Mm.
3: Um, I, I felt similarly kind of affectionate for it, watching it, because you do think that those films were a big deal back then. They were. you know Because
7: that's all you had. You know. It was our only access, was It's a fantasy film, really. The, the fantasy as we know it weren't, weren't really it well, I, 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 I think I may have said this before, but
3: you, you go to the cinema, you go to cinema on any given day of the year now, and there yeah. will be some form of science fiction, superhero or fantasy film available, yeah. whether it's a good one or not. But there will be something, won't there? You know, one minute it's Captain Marvel, the next minute it's the Avengers endgame. Yeah. And In- then it will be something else. But, but back then, they were... They were seen as—I mean, they were—they were treated, I suppose, with a bit of contempt by the filmmakers, as if they were sort of just B movies. Was and, were
7: there actually any fantasy films in the seventies? Because you would—you argue that isn't a fantasy film to me.
3: It's a bit of science fiction, isn't it? Science it's fantasy. Science fantasy. I don't, yeah, it's not swords and sorcery it's, kind of science
7: fiction. Yeah, no, no. Probably. Not
0: probably Lord of the Rings as a cartoonist.
3: Well, that's but, yeah. Eight,
7: was it? I
0: but you, c- you could describe. Uh, Doug McClure is a franchise, couldn't you? Now, because because yeah, oh, yeah, yeah because yeah. Yeah. he had a series of films, didn't he? Because yeah. you um, had the Land That Time Forgot, like, came before this one, yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And really, it's the same kind of stories. Same <laughs> <It's laughs> Doug
3: McClure goes somewhere weird, and yeah. It hits people. tropical island, right? then
0: the then you had this one, then the people that time forgot, yeah. And then your favorite, Warlords of Atlantis, yeah. But
7: she was out later, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, was
3: it later, was, yeah, that he was, was the last on he he was, he was, he was a franchise, because as a kid, I remember if, if Doug McClure was in it, you assumed, oh right, this will be good. Because be. It's, it's you know what, be.
0: it is like McDonald's, isn't it? So first thing to say is the uh, the soundtrack, isn't it? So when it opens up, you've got um, library footage of mm. a um, steelwork somewhere. Mm. I mean, yeah. well, it, well, it's done it's quite cleverly,
3: isn't it? I think at first you think it, it is the Earth's core. And then gradually you realise it's a steelworks. Yeah. They're building the, the mole, mm. aren't they? The, the thing, the, the, the machine.
0: The high-calibration digging machine, you mean? And
3: that's what that's what, um, Peter Crouch's character calls is isn't it? Yeah, but yeah.
0: it's called the Iron Mole, isn't it? Yeah, but. the mole. And you've got to say something about the soundtrack, haven't you? Because it's like part Tangerine Dream, part uh, yeah, it it's Elgar? A, it's a fantastic soundtrack. I loved yeah.
7: it. Especially the bits when they went... Was it a Lucidal? When they went outside and went... It changed from like slightly classical to this wine. You could say it's, it's fantastic. Great. I love that could, kind of music. You could say it's 70's fantastic. Prog. You
3: could say somebody's got drunk and let loose in the radio. It's
7: seventies prog, It's great. So,
2: right. To I, me,
7: it says otherworldliness. <laughs> purple sky, bit of prog on the, back, in the background. This is a weird soundtrack. The whole, I think, the whole soundtrack is
3: weird because yeah. the, the, some of the sound, the monsters make weird sounds, everything's, yeah. everything's weird, like I said, they've just discovered
7: these sound samples, haven't they?
0: Yeah, they, they've gone crazy,
7: yeah, haven't yeah. they? They've
0: look what we can do, let's do, we'll that. do that, let's yeah. do this. So, so we see the mole, and it's in Wales, it all starts in Wales. was yeah. <laughs> so, so in Wales, it Valley. Ronda Valley. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and they, uh, they have this big mole, and it's pointed to it, and they've got a crowd gathered, haven't they? Yeah, in
3: straw boaters and blazers, that yeah. kind of Edwardian, isn't it? It's yeah, set in the Edwardian times, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. well, it's it written. That's what it's it it set when it was written, isn't yeah.
0: it? Yeah, and uh, and then you've got you got Peter Cushing who's uh, the professor, and you've got Doug McClure. Who, it's Doug McClure. Doug McClure, and you know he's a brash American because he's wearing because he's Doug McClure, and he is a brash American, and he's wearing a check suit, And a cigar, yeah, and a cigar. Got yeah. there, yeah.
7: That's his prop isn't it. I know. doesn't know <laughs> what to do with his hands, so he's to have a cigar. Hasn't <laughs> <laughs> and a brown derby hat as well, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, of
3: yeah. course. Cool Peter Cushing, um, Peter Cushing is, the, is the doctor, is the professor. Is a doctor or a professor? He's a professor. The professor, yeah. isn't is he? He has the weirdest, weirdest accent. It is, yeah. I, I realised halfway through, uh, he's trying to be Welsh, but he's not pulling me off. Oh, oh, ah, uh, is he's like Welsh, trying I'm, to do a Welsh to accent. To me, he irritated really me in it, actually,
7: <laughs> yeah. David! Yeah, <laughs> yeah bumbling like around. It it lapses. this really place.
3: Yeah, like a po- posh fella. But also, at times, slightly wet. Sh-
0: well, when you think at this time, he'd have been playing Moff Tarkin.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
0: he'd been filming Moff Tarkin and it then... Been, yeah,
2: you yeah, know, yeah. Looking yeah. down his
0: list, or oh, what am I doing next? Or oh, Dottie Professor. Fascinating actor. I looked him up on Wikipedia.
3: You, would, you wouldn't believe. <laughs> into, he was into, I don't, is this true or not? Someone write in and tell me, because it's on Wikipedia. Three fascinating facts about it. Peter cool. Cushing. A... He collected model soldiers. He was a gamer. All oh, right. Yeah, I heard that. Played you? war games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, we've got into we've got a citation here. Citation. Okay. Have you heard that? Yeah. Corroborated. He... About
7: ten years ago, there was someone at work who fancied him, even though he was like, An actor fifty never years met. old. Yeah, he's oh, fifty right. years older than her. <laughs> she
3: fancied Peter Cushing.
7: Yeah, she had a thing for him. <laughs> really? She was a big horror film fan. She so fancied yeah, him. All right. Okay. So. Go on, carry on. Well, yes, that's, that's, that's more so interesting much.
3: than these. i I'm, I'm intrigued by this woman and fancy Peter Cushing. Anyway, uh, the next thing is he was vegetarian as well for most of his life. For most of his most of his life, life he was president. I think he's president or something of the vegetarian society for a while. Mm-hmm. And then did he get on to eating meat? No, no. I think I think he ate, met, ate meat and then he then he got on to. Be oh a okay. Later, I think that that came later. But yeah. And thirdly, he was he had a fear of the dark. Fear of the dark, fear of the dark. How can you, you, how, can, phobia. how can you chase vampires if you're Well, this is it, isn't it? He spent most of his time up to his knees in gore in horror films. He's a vegetarian. Yeah, yeah. And of he's of the dark. He spent most of his
0: time hammer horror films, which are predominantly set at night.
3: <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure it's true, but that's what it says.
0: Yeah, that's probably why he was ambivalent to the dark side. Of uh, <laughs> course, yeah, ironically. <laughs> <and
3: play. laughs> it says he got over it. He um, went for walks at night. No, the window. He's frightened of the dark. For for, for the Peter no. Cushing method. Get mugged. Yeah, got you the fear of being mugged then. <laughs> but the night didn't find not substitution, the dark, it? right? The
0: fear of being world. mugged. So they get they get inside the uh, cockpit, get all the dials. It's very <laughs> very pulpy, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, tells him put his cigar right? mm. away because,
7: because they run out of oxygen. Yeah, well, there's no oxygen tanks. <laughs> Health and safety yeah. gun. most design yeah. drill I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> it's,
3: it's like the thing out of Thunderbirds, but just bigger. Yeah. Thunderbirds used to have a drill thing in Thunderbird yeah. 2. It just looks like that, but bigger. Which came first though? So it? It, it it drills down and it goes
0: through different layers, doesn't it? Yeah. The, it goes underwater. Yeah. it's all over the place, don't oh, it? it? Up it, and down. It, yeah. What's going on? It takes a
3: wobbly line on that graph, doesn't <laughs> it it? does not There's yeah. a picture of the earth, doesn't it? Like it's a circle. very
7: cheap way of showing them drilling <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. all the way
0: along <laughs> it goes it goes along and um, <laughs> and they, they, they ultimately get knocked off the, off the swivel chairs don't they yeah yeah. it's very cold it's very hot it's, it's just a not they? and then they wake up in this lurid coloured yeah. yeah. place
7: they're at the Earth core they never world. actually get there because that line goes across a bit and then back up they're actually on the way up right? it does
3: I, I, I did notice that they, they're, they, they're calling on. to the graph the, the radar thing in his machine they don't actually get to the core but then is it, how reliable is it I mean, the whole machine's <laughs> not reliable that's why they're in that predicament isn't it we so <laughs> are only gone about 200 feet underground <laughs>
2: and, uh, probably so. <laughs>
3: we're landing the movie set <laughs>
0: and there's all this like flora and fauna Purple floor and yeah. yeah, And then we get the first thing, don't we? The giant budgie lizard. Yeah. Comes yes. the
7: Yeah. <laughs> that strange hawk like creature thing yeah. with a funny face.
3: Thing. I have to say all, there was a man in a suit. All the monsters in it all the monsters in the film generally reminded me of it's a knockout. <laughs> you know when they used to have people dressed as giants? Fighting each other. Wobbling see, on. On the it, remind, it just reminded me of that, like the Phil Rouge. I thought Eddie Waring he's a commentary from Eddie Waring, you know, <laughs> Italy in Spain dressed as monsters. It's obviously it's
7: the other. weak point of the uh, film, isn't it? The money spent on the, but the monsters.
0: It, yeah. But you see, yeah. going to defend it, it? Defending now. Go on. Go, on. go on, defend it. Well, I knew as a kid that the monsters were <laughs> costumes, but I still thought they were brilliant. Yeah, because you were expected to. Fill in the
7: blanks with your imagination. Yeah, yeah. In them days, well, yeah, yeah, they knew yeah. this was a common thing, like yeah. watching a player. You know, you know these things that aren't in you know proper effects for the player, but you you, you accept it. Mm. And that you'll think, yeah, I know it's a guy, but it's also a monster. Yeah. That's so, actually.
0: so, the, so they get rescued, don't they? They get rescued by the um, the Sagoth, the half human, half pig. Uh, doing, uh, creatures, yeah, creatures yeah, yeah. slaver yeah. things sliver like. things talk like uh, fax machines don't they
7: <coughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Dude, thought,
0: again
3: radiophonic really
0: workshop yeah. I
7: thought the <laughs> sound had gone on the DVD when that right? <laughs> <laughs> <I> thought eh? <laughs> looking a faulty one and took it to this shop I wonder if that fella he's used to <laughs> out, he used to get that complaint
3: They give it back to him and say it's faulty this
0: Cause can't do well right. no little fellas are saying <laughs>
4: Take if, it back.
0: If if it did, we never got it back. I think we ended you up with somewhere in time it's or something a, like some that. Faulty one, this. Story, <laughs> the, so the what this if they find out from uh, Dia, it's Dia. I thought it was Dyer, but it's Dia, isn't it? So Caroline Munro, oh, it's yeah. Dia. Yeah, tells them that they're being taken as slaves for the Mayhans mm. who, who are in the city, and they're being uh, done that. now there's a complicated bit of this is this is very subtle this because Doug McClure steps in doesn't he to stop her being rubbish uh, by uh, a you know, boyfriend yeah.
7: Frank Zappa <laughs> <laughs> he likes something out of it again he prog, does prog rock band he man,
3: does he like it, it, it does do somebody like Boston. a Boston I think the whole tribe looks like a prog rock band doesn't it <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah like Spinal Tap <laughs> and, and he he does something Doug McClure steps in points to say of course that's bad isn't it because mm. that's a 4 part I and mean, i don't quite understand it but no. by doing that it's a bit like you know if you well he apparently if, isn't if it if you sip your tea the wrong well, way isn't it apparently
3: because yeah. he because he's fought off the competition he has to claim her doesn't he? And, and being a polite quite convenient man from the surface world he doesn't do that he just no. protects her and then says oh there you go madam i've protected you but really, he's supposed to claim her, isn't it, or something? Yeah. And he's offended, and, and that's the end of that, apparently. Yeah. That's what we think.
0: It's very complicated. It's a bit I could that. never work that out. It's a weird custom, isn't it? Yeah, a weird custom. And what you're in there, Grice Burroughs, there's quite a bit of that uh, thing about um, uh, aggression and mm. the rights of aggression and people asserting power through um, it's claiming... A, it's that pulp thing, isn't it? Yeah. You know, the hero, the macho... You
7: yeah. sock someone on the job, well, a bit Robert of that, Howard, isn't it? You, yeah, you punch someone and you claim the the, the prize. I don't think you? There's a
3: bit of that in John Carter as well, isn't there? I saw the film, John Carter film, which is quite good actually. Um, and there's a bit of that in that, you know, about tribes and princesses and people's rights over other people, that kind of thing. Yeah. Is there? what Tarzan's, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tarzan, Tarzan's Yeah, have you read
0: Tarzan? Tarzan's Tarzan's <laughs> rest of the uh, Jungle, is him. Um, asserting power or the other apes mm-hmm. and showing dominance yeah yeah, yeah. and uh, there's quite a lot of that, yeah
3: there is and like you said yeah, it's called cool, that that's a, a central part of it really isn't it because because he's committed this uh, error of judgment or because he doesn't realize what he's done that he wants to kind of find her again
0: doesn't he yeah there's so. little bits of yeah. savage etiquette so is he it? finding her
7: yeah. because he fancies her well he's kind of a like Monroe so yeah well, he would do. He, know, was he was like busy, he? thirty years older than. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At that time, I don't.
3: Would, would he be <laughs> though? No, I don't think he was actually. He died quite young, didn't he? He did. He did. Yeah, for yeah. Forty 50, something. He looked older than. Fifty-nine. Fifty-nine. That's
0: he had no, six it. wives. Fifty-nine. Six wives. That's some going, that isn't yeah, there it? It is. Passed him for you there. Passed <laughs> <there. laughs> <laughs> no, <seen> him off. <laughs> okay, so. As, they, as they're being taken to the caves, mm. this is where you see two lumbering pig-like things. Yeah, this is where charging Spain into it. and Italy's oh. contestants <laughs> in the Foul <laughs> Rouge dense. batter each other senseless, dressed as rubber monsters. <laughs> and it's an epic clash, isn't it? Where they run into it and... The faces don't move, do <laughs> It's just obviously two guys trying to punch it, each other's stomach. is two
7: men in rubber suits. Yeah, running at each so other, obvious. Punching on each a split-screen focus thing, Yeah, it's a split-screen start. So they're
0: below on half the screen. And script. you've got you've got the sound effects, and you've got um, Peter Cushing going, ooh, in the background, <laughs> don't Yeah. not he? He ruins it then, doesn't
7: he, Peter Cushing? Bumbling around, that misplaced comic <laughs> timing. That is his finest thing. moment. He's a good actor. You can't not like Peter Cushy. But, but he's played, he played to Doctor
3: Who, didn't he? In two Doctor Who films.
7: Did he play him like that? Well, I, I didn't quite,
3: it's not quite like that, but it, but it's a similar kind of thing. I think mean, Doctor Who is a bit more competent, but obviously, really? but he, yeah, it's a similar. But it's a similar kind of role, isn't it? He, he's like, you know, going somewhere yeah. with, his, with his assistant, yeah, his yeah. companion. So,
7: yeah, same part, isn't mm. it?
3: But I think he played Doctor Who is late, it might have been the late, six, late mm. six 1960s, I think, early 1970s. Can't remember. Yeah. There's two, there's two films,
0: in there? So the uh, the humans are then led towards uh the, the, the caves and there's like it seems to take a long time this bit, it? so it's
3: it? takes a hell of a long time, and there's a there's a tip there for every games master. If you ever have to do a journey in a game, <laughs> just get it over with because it's <laughs> they they say of,
0: they've had two days travelling, don't they?
7: But it felt it feels like two. It's, like it. it's real only an time. hour and a half long film, but it felt
3: <laughs> yeah. that bit feels, oh my, it's going on forever.
0: So in the caves, and they're going to be offered as a sacrifice to the mayhars. Now, to me, the mayhas are terrifying. The creepy blinks. With The creepy blinks. <laughs>
3: creepy blinks and creepy noises. Yeah. You know? I mean, although although I did, did joke about the this, the soundtrack and the special effect, the noise special effect. It does add something to it. The noises are weird. It's full of weird noises. That's the thing that's... The thing actually surprised me, re really watching it, that I didn't... The only thing this thing I didn't remember from being a kid, how weird the sound effects are. Mm-hmm. And it's just full of weird sound effects. Right from those little pigmen, the way they speak, mm-hmm. to the, the way the mayhouse make the screechy noises. The whole thing's full of weird noises, isn't it? Well, which of lect- electronica, does, isn't it? Yeah, but it does add something, something sort of does. odd odd to it you know
0: mm. and and the way that these mayhouse look they're like high in the caves aren't they and they seem to have some kind of telepathic power between each other
2: mm.
0: and some over the little pigmen yeah, uh, yeah control don't they yeah. Yeah. it's done quite effectively that isn't mm. it yeah but um, Ines, um Doug McClure escapes doesn't he, he gets gets mm. away goes on for a bit and about halfway, he starts putting chalk on the walls. <laughs> Don't do it earlier on.
7: No, he just you just <laughs> yeah. yeah. He just but... appears with a bit of chalk, doesn't he? Yeah. yeah. Even though he's already lost. Yeah, where did he find that?
0: <laughs> <laughs> and so, eventually, he gets us and he gets his way through. And he sees a local, doesn't he? He comes outside the cave. Doesn't outside, the cave it's
7: it's outside the cave. That's a proggy soundtrack, doesn't it? Every time we go outside, that. Like, <laughs> purple
0: skies and then they get attacked by a plant
3: they they fight each other don't they They and then they get attacked by a plant I think Doug Doug saves his life by the man-eating plant
0: that was quite a good
7: effect that that plant that plant yeah it was quite creepy that scene yeah it was was done quite well for what limited kind of effects they had
0: and so they start to conspire don't they to uh, overthrow the the mayhems. and they get in and then this is the scene isn't it this is the scene where and uh, the women are offered as sacrifice. Yeah. And this, they, to me,
3: this is terrifying. Th- that is genuinely, uh, that is creepy and weird because they are, they're like hypnotised, these four women, aren't they? And they're kind of picked off by these male. It's like
7: straight it? out of a sexploitation film, isn't it?
3: You know.
0: <laughs> I didn't have to convince my dad that hard to go and watch it, though, that's the thing. <laughs> Three times one holiday in Markham. Yeah. Captured, isn't he, uh, Doug McClure at this point, mm. and he's forced to fight a giant lizard. Giant. Yeah. It's like a bull, yeah. isn't it? The Swedish, it's
3: the Swedish, rhinoceros. it's a knockout team. <laughs> Swedish, yeah. is a knockout team. Three, like three, a of, three of
0: three Swedish fellas in a suit. It's, well, <laughs> it, to be honest, it frankly looks like it couldn't be us nice fighting, to be honest. So it's like a big lumbering thing, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Thinking, what am I doing here? It so doesn't that dangerous.
7: No, it it's not very really agile, is it? <laughs> no. You can just wear it out by walking around in a circle. It's like they can't really bite him because yeah. they didn't have the effects for the teeth. It just nuzzled him, didn't it? Yeah, it did.
3: Yeah, like, like a killer, a a killer pantomime horse <laughs> chasing him around.
0: <laughs> and so he sticks his uh, spear into it and kills it. His broken, broken spear. His broken yeah. spear, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, Quite the, conveniently,
7: they'd run outside the cave and there's something to be on the cliff edge, and she's there. Yeah. Why are they there? They just appeared out of nowhere. No, Doug jumps across, saves her by sheltering her, and the professor... Professor gets a bow and arrow, doesn't bow and arrow from it? nowhere. Somewhere. Yeah. Finds one there. shoots at the, the fire-breathing dragon, could you call it? Toad. <laughs> fire-breathing toad, isn't it? It just rolls down the hill, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> does it explode at the bottom? It does explode. Yeah, yeah. should sure, yeah. dragons explode when you <laughs> fall down? It, it seems, yeah, like a fire-breathing
3: creature. So it seems like a flaw in its survival. <laughs> from a Darwinistic perspective: if it, if it has a tumble and explodes, <laughs> not much future for them, is there?
2: No, <laughs> the
3: survival of the fittest and all that.
0: <laughs> so when when they've got a deer, she starts to it starts getting this more and this complicated power relationship again doesn't it she
3: starts telling him
0: about the ugly one and the sly one
2: yeah
3: they're all called something aren't they no wonder at one point the tribes admit they don't all get on no wonder
0: you're the ugly one you're the (laughs) sly
3: one alright you're the fat one
0: (laughs) you're the one with big ears you're (laughs) the spotty one they're they're very judgmental aren't they they are and so they get I'm trying to work this out so is it is it the the ugly I can't remember it is it the ugly one who it's the ugly one who, who wants her and yeah, but what, did, I couldn't get
3: that.
7: Because the sly one had been trying to get her, but Doug McClure set, stepped in, punched the, the sly one. The sly one decided <laughs> to back the ugly one. Yeah, the sly yeah, one it, thought, it oh, she of... belongs to the ugly one. I can't. I mean, maybe it's
3: the ugly? savage etiquette. He's been defeated, he accepts that, and thinks, all right, well, in that case, I'll get the ugly one to do over Doug.
7: Yeah. as a sort of... So it's really this thing, it's weird, just like a, a, a sequence, yeah. sequence of encounters, isn't it? Yeah, could think of. We'll have a fight with this yeah, dragon. Yeah, yeah. Fight with the, the this bull, yeah. lizard thing. Fight with this walking peacock thing in the jungle.
0: It's an AD&D module. it really, is, isn't it,
7: it is. Yeah. One encounter after another, yeah. no
0: plot. And a dungeon. Just... And, <laughs> and also what um, uh, Doug does, he kind of raises them up as an army. He starts yeah. getting them yeah. to feel like revolution, right. a revolution. I mean. yeah. They don't have to be slaves, do they, anymore? No. Mm. And so he ends up defeating the ugly one the sly one and oh, the, the mayhars eventually the mayhars and what they what they uh, have a chance now of taking Dea home yeah but, but she doesn't want to does she no she don't no. she doesn't want to go why wouldn't she why wouldn't she want to go though because she well, said why? she was but happy if Carolyn
3: Monroe said don't you stay there with Carolyn Monroe in the centre of the yeah, would wouldn't you you would wouldn't you Any, anyone would I mean, why would you say well I'm not coming with you well never mind I'll, I'll, I'll go
7: oh, thanks it's all stay. that for nothing <laughs> yeah. but it, it always looked a bit unrealistic that relationship to me Doug McClure and it
0: was doomed to disaster <laughs> That's Be fair, not, she just, not just
3: the relationship was unrealistic <laughs> firm, everything else <laughs> I
0: think I think what you'll find is that's called acting because uh, Caroline Monroe is playing a very difficult part in that uh, where she's trying to yes, it's be difficult playing a woman from the <laughs> earth's core, yeah. <laughs> but also trying to what she's trying to do as a princess is to balance yeah. the, the responsibilities towards her people and her own desires.
7: Wow, so she's wow. yeah. She
0: have any responsibilities to her people? Of course, because she's a princess. All oh, right, yeah. yeah. You mentioned
7: that in passing, but yeah. there was no evidence of that was there?
0: But she she's got she had to balance those responsibilities with her own personal desires and in the end she chose well that and that's fine
3: but why didn't Doug just stay with her I think in a modern re, a modern retelling of it he'd stay yeah, with her, yeah.
7: wouldn't
3: he yeah he'd he, he bend to her kind of
7: but did they do a, re, a remake a couple of years ago
0: with the they, rock they did um,
7: oh, journey it? to the center of oh, the earth
0: right. and it's easy to confuse the two Yeah. <laughs> why <laughs> <laughs>
3: These yeah. things are confused.
0: So the giant mole returns to the surface it of the does, earth. Does, yeah, yeah. yeah, peace is restored.
3: It, it returns behind two Keystone cops outside the,
0: in wires, the, in it? the wire In the White In the
3: Yeah. Alone, yeah. yeah two
0: Keystone <laughs> cops
3: like run around, like in circles and then run away.
0: <laughs> it would have been an anticlimax to end up back in the the, of the, valley. In the valley. Yeah. So yeah, they end up in a Y test. So, so that's, uh, th- that's at the airs core, so as a game. So we've already said that it's a series of encounters. Mm. What else can we get from it? As a, well, can... like if
7: you give your players a drill, they can drill their own dungeon. <laughs> 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 really, yeah. Stop It's odd drawing a map. A, ma- a machine that goes crazy. A machine that drill Drills your own dungeon. Get Drill your way, back way down and I'll just throw some encounters in yeah. there. Yeah, it's easy, no map needed. I do, I do <laughs> think
3: the ending, the the ending does smack actually of a role playing session uh, it's... that's run out of time, where the games master says, the players say, well, well the, the the drill, the mole, wasn't it broken? Oh yeah, well, it's fixed now. All yeah. right, what do we do I about the princess? Now nah, nothing,
7: never mind. You go home, right? Get over it. Was it? Would you say it was a Cthulhu scenario or not? To me, it's. it's because it, it's set in the Victorian well, Pol- era, like a
0: pulp, isn't it? big pulp.
7: Theorist, it, does it doesn't, doesn't it? it? To me, it's not fantasy. No, it's, it's more like yeah. a science. And kind of, to me, it's it's got to go into the kind of yeah. almost like imagine these early Call of Cthulhu scenarios. In fact, they did have one where they went into under the mean, dinosaurs. It, it almost, does,
3: it does have a. There is a. Yeah, there's a way because, Cthulhu about it. without right, right, the, the, the mythos world, in isn't it? Creaks, kind
0: of. yeah, yeah. But it, it. You could say yeah. the Mayans is uh, mythos. Chris, 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 yeah, Chris, yeah, Chris, yeah. Yeah. yeah, they're like uh, Migos, aren't they? Yeah, Magos. Yeah, Migos, um, you know, capturing because yeah. and I think in the novel they indicate that the telepathic powers go travel through dimensions, so their thoughts travel through mm. dimensions. Yeah.
2: So yeah, That's yeah. What I'm
3: yeah, it's not it's not obvious when you first watch it, but the more you think about it, I suppose that that is the role playing box. It sort of does fit in, doesn't it? Mm. You know.
0: And the other the other thing is that back in the day, back in the eighties, you probably didn't realise, but we replayed this um, scenario over and over because I used to re- do this. It always yeah. used to be <laughs> people under threat, and uh, you know, civilization rescue yeah. somebody, yeah. and you had a chance to. Um, Mobilise the community to rise up against. Do a source book,
7: At the earth's Core RPG source.
0: There you go, At the earth's Core. I think what you could say is, it, you know, I, I've, I of course have got a nostalgic affection for it, and um, you know, it is entertaining. Yeah, it's fun. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, yeah, it's yeah really I fun, watch. Man. I mean,
7: I was impressed by the effects, really. But I do watch a lot of like. Uh, bad films yeah bad TV <laughs> programs I mean I've just watched several 1970s TV programs so that compared to them because you could tell they had more money spent on it yeah, yeah. you know it's more concise I mean what did I watch The Nightmare Man I watched Sky the 1975 yeah TV thing, and
0: they're terrible, really. The effects, I'm gonna go away and uh, plan my at the earth core source book, yeah. Until then, <laughs> and if that if that fellow with the suitcase is still around, can I have his video back? Thanks a lot, Eddie. No kiddo, all right. Thanks, Thanks Blaine. See, right. See, See you then. Yeah. Thanks to Ken St. Andre for being part of the grog pod. I'm sure you'll agree that's been an entertaining, enlightening, and uplifting addition to the files. Thanks too to Steve for his first, last and everything. I have some more prepared, but if you'd like to take part, then please let me know, dirtthedice at gmail.com. If you want to hear more about the further adventures of Potty, Gut and Git, then follow What Would The Smart Party Do, as they will be releasing the rest of the recording. Baz and Gaz are hosting a seminar on how to games master at conventions at noon on Saturday at the UK Games Expo this year. I'll be on the panel with Paul Fricker from the good friends of Jackson Elias. I know, like I know anything. I'll be rapidly honing my apprenticeship during the convention by running games most of the time. If you're going to go, then please come along to the seminar and say hello. And we'll be in the bar at the Hilton on Saturday night too. If you're already a patron of the Grogknife Files, then the Grogzine 19 annual is on its way. Somehow, it's bigger and better than ever before, even though it's half the size. If you've missed it, don't worry. If you join us from June, the PDF will be available. The podcast will always be free, but the Grogzine is something that's only available to patrons. Posting it costs a fortune, But there's nothing better than receiving a package through the post. The hosting bill is due too. And the Patreon contributions really do help keep this show on the road. So thank you so much to all of you who've given us a tip every month. Now, we've reached a milestone, a stretch goal, if you will. So next month, we'll drop an extra nostalgia pod and give some individual shout-outs to the new subscribers. Until next time, adios amigos.